Try that with me. Welcome, everybody, to Temple Bethel, the Samueli Center for Progressive Judaism. My name is Kavod Weeder. I'm one of the rabbis here, and along with Rabbi Heather Miller and Cantor Natalie Young, we welcome you. Um, the reception this evening was brought to you by our Israel Matters Committee. Israel Matters, can you raise your hand so we can see you? Can, we didn't have to do it, but, but they wanted to create a welcoming space for everybody um, to come. And we had to start out with a song because, you know, we get this many people in a room together and, and why not? So, we'll have to refill your water, Yehuda. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're called the Center for Progressive Judaism and one of the reasons for that uh, now we can look at is that we are a duly affiliated congregation. We're affiliated with both the reform movement, the URJ, and the conservative movement, the USCJ. Um, and what I would like to see that we are continuing to grow towards is that that center of progressive Judaism means, means a center for inclusive Judaism. That really, what we really aspire to be is Kal Yisrael, that we're really here, that no matter where we come from, our backgrounds, we can come as we are and be welcomed as we are, whatever our perspectives are on how this country should be run, on what should happen in Israel, we can come and be able to be heard and welcomed. And this became you know, so much forefront on my mind after the 2016 election when we started to experience the extreme polarization in our country. And it became really clear, like, how do we, because people in our congregation as a microcosm for, for this country and for many congregations, were having trouble having conversations about what's important to them with their own family, politically, 
whatever it is, some of the most things that we feel passionately about, we would start to withhold from the people that we would care about the most because you know that you just don't talk about that if you want to have shalom bite or peace in your family. And it became really important that there's something really, really off about this, that if we want to create the kind of world we want to create, we have to be able to talk to each other about difficult things. And so I was looking for ways in our congregation that we could come together in this kind of dialogue. And um, when Lisa Armoni of director of the Rose Project of the Jewish Federation and Family Services here in Orange County came to introduce the I Engage initiative, community learning initiative, Jewish values in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and especially because of my familiarity with some of the work of Shalom Hartman Institute, realized this could be the way to start to open our ability to have conversations with each other and hear each other. And, and it, it's been that, that even as the curriculum of the I Engage program is, deals with the content around the, Jew, Jew, the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, the central message that I get from the class and the course is how do we have conversations with each other with people who have different perspectives? How do we listen for and communicate the values that are behind our perspectives? And that's what we're about as, as a Jewish community is to have our lives directed by values, by Torah. And, and that whole piece is something that we get not only in the curriculum in the course of the Jewish of Israeli and Palestinian conflict, but these are things that we're learning to do to bring into our, our conversations outside of the conflict, but in everything that's going on. So the other piece that, that I, I think is important, is central about this, is not only do the, these abilities to have these conversations create space for us to be an inclusive community, but it's also the only way that we grow as people we only grow as people when we can have our own perspective be challenged and be broadened by, by others. The piece that I want to leave us before, before I turn this over is, uh, is one of my favorite pieces of Talmud um, from Baba Metzia 84b. And this is about Re uh, Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan were chevruta, were study partners for their entire life very close, always arguing, always debating. And Resh Lakish died, and Rabbi Yochanan was plunged into deep grief and said to rabbis, who shall go forward to ease his mind? Let Rabbi Elazar ben Padat go, whose disquisitions are very subtle. He'll be able to, to help soothe and console Rabbi Yochanan. So he went and sat before him, and on every dictum, uttered by Rabbi Yochanan, he observed, there's a brighta, there's, a, there's a, a, a rabbinic statement that supports exactly what you're saying. And he says, are, are you the son of Lakisha, of Resh Lakish? And he complained, when I, Rabbi Yochanan complained, when I stated a law, the son of Lakisha used to raise 24 objections to which I gave 24 answers, which consequently led to a fuller comprehension of the law. And while you say, a, a bright a rabbinic statement's been taught that supports you, 
Don't I know myself which dicta are right? I don't need you to tell me that. And then he went on rending his garments and weeping. Where are you, Reish Lakish? Where are you? Where are you? And cried thus until his mind was turned. And thereupon the rabbis prayed for him and he died. So this piece here, that, that, com that ability to have conversations that challenge each other is so essential to our ability to grow that if we don't have that, if we just have people that agree with us, then where are we? So a um, couple just statements about our space. If you need to use a restroom, you can go out the door to the top of the stairs and make a right. There's a drinking fountain and then go all the way down to the hall and there is, uh, there's bathrooms there. As we just learned recently, um, please t make sure your cell phones are on silent or turned off so that we can really give full attention to our speaker tonight. And notice um, where the the exits are in our, in our building. We have one over here, we have one here, one out the front. So just in case we needed to make a, a quick break, we know where to go, because at Temple Bethel, we really try to create a culture of safety and security. So if you, if you see something that seems off or suspicious, say something, speak up, we, we create that together. So at this point, I'd like to introduce Lisa Armoni, the director of the Rose Project of Jewish Federation and Family Services. Thank you, Kavod. Good evening, everybody. It's, it's really terrific to see so many familiar faces here. Um, I want to thank Temple Bethel uh, for hosting us today. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Weeder. Thank you to the Israel Matters Committee for your gracious reception out there and for welcoming everybody as warmly as you did. Um, I'm the director of the Rose Project of Jewish Federation and Family Services. Uh, and I just wanted to share a few words um, beyond what, what uh, Rabbi Weeder was saying um, in terms of, of the, the nature of the I Engage um, program, in terms of its, its, um, its role as a community dialogue. Um, the Rose Project is, um, is a convener of community. We see our role as bringing people together from across the community to discuss issues of concern, the critical issues that we're dealing with today, um, and also to serve as a resource for robust Israel education. And it's really in that spirit that we've partnered with the renowned Shalom Hartman Institute and nine congregations and community organizations around Orange County. This program is touching between 200 and 250 learners around the county from Fullerton to Aliso Viejo, including high school students, college students, and adult learners. We are truly having a community-wide dialogue about Jewish values and the importance of engaging in civil discourse across difference. Um, we know that we live in polarized times. We know that there are many issues, including Israel, including other issues, that we may not see eye to eye on. But we also know that as Jews, we carry a rich tradition of civil discourse, of navigating issues in, a way, in, in ways that allow us to stay in community with each other despite disagreement. That's the commitment that we've all made in participating in the I Engage program. 
Um, so if you are an iEngage student, I want to say thank you for, for being a part of the journey, and I hope that you're, um, you're really appreciating the value of the program. If you're not an iEngage student, find me, because we'd love to have you be part of the program. And to the iEngage educators who are here in the room, and, uh, and we're teaching 12 cohorts collectively between all of us, I just want to say thank you for your commitment. It is a big commitment to be an iEngage educator. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of preparation. It's a lot of time. And we know that our rabbis and Jewish educators in the community have very full plates to begin with. But, but I, I think that what we've seen is um, the importance that they attach to this exercise. And so I really value their partnership. We all value it. And, and, and without all of us and them, it couldn't have been possible. Um, I, just, I want to also acknowledge the, the funders for this program, who, without whom it, this also could not be possible, obviously. Um, the Rose Council of Jewish Federation and Family Services, the Jewish... Um, Foundation of Orange County, and the Orange County uh, chapter of the American Jewish Committee. So thank you to all of you for, for your financial support for this. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker. In his capacity as president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer is transforming the way American and Israeli Jews think about some of the major challenges facing our communities and our relationship to each other. A prolific writer, a profound theorist, and one of the most sought-after intellectuals on the scene today, Yehuda is a leading thinker on the meaning of Israel to American Jews, the value of the Jewish past to the Jewish present, and questions of leadership and change in American Jewish life. If you've had the good fortune to hear Yehuda at one of the many conferences or Hartman programs where he presents, or to read one of the many articles he's authored in leading Jewish and secular publications, or even scrolled through his Facebook posts, which I, he wins the prize for the most intense Facebook posts, um, you know that when Yehuda's around, you're going to be challenged to think differently, more deeply, and in ways that strengthen Jewish peoplehood, identity, and pluralism, and ensure that Judaism is a compelling force for good. Yehuda Kurtzer has a very long and impressive bio, but I, I just want to mention a couple of his um, most impressive accomplishments. He has a doctorate in Jewish studies from Harvard University and is an alumnus of both the Bronfman Youth and Wexner Graduate Fellowships. He lives in New York with his family. And Yehuda, I want to just say what an honor it has been to spend the day with you, to have you here in our community, and to, for you to be here to learn with us tonight, and not just on video, but really in person. So thank you, and please welcome Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. Uh, thank you, Lisa, for that incredibly gracious introduction. Thank you, Rabbi Weider, for um, housing us here in this incredible sanctuary. Uh, thanks to my colleague, Cantor Michelle Stone, who runs all of our Hartman programs here in Southern California and, and was responsible for partnering with Lisa and bringing this together. You know, I have to tell you, um, <clears throat> today was actually very moving for me, and, in, and tonight is as well. When we uh, launched the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America about nine years ago and asked what are the activities and ideas that we might do? What experiments might we run in the interest of trying to introduce ideas, raise challenges, and stimulate new conversations for the Jewish people in North America about our challenges on the theory 
that our community is blessed with so many gifts, so many resources, but that the challenges that we face, the conceptual big ideas challenges are actually quite significant. To, to look back now and see um, in this community, 250 people uh, studying these materials, challenging each other, countering the prevailing wisdom that's out there that the Jewish community can't talk to each other about its most difficult challenges, but actually 250 people from across the community can study something that's called Jewish values in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and not kill each other. That's an extraordinary thing um, to witness, and um, it really never stops to be very moving to me to see so many people come out on a weeknight to do some deep learning um, with the knowledge that and a spoiler alert, there's not gonna be easy answers that come out of anything that we talk about, and I'm gonna ask some harder questions than I am gonna provide uh, guidance or wisdom on how we're meant to solve it. But the commitment to do so um, actually really makes me incredibly optimistic about the future of Jewish life. If we continue to show up and enact the communities of curiosity and inquiry and seeking that we ultimately want to bequeath to those who come after us, I think, I think we'll ultimately be okay. In that spirit, I wanted tonight to take on uh, a kind of side issue to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict itself, in part because I know that many of you are studying these materials and are probably a different place in the curriculum around Jewish values in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but I wanted to raise a kind of meta-issue that pertains to all of us in the American Jewish community in relationship not just to the conflict, but to Israel itself. For over a decade now, American Jews, American Jewish leaders have been uh, raising the flag and sounding the alarm about the growing distance that we know and are experiencing between American Jews and Israel. The distance that American Jews are inhabiting from Israel manifests in multiple different forms and actually represents a number of um, disconnected social phenomena that oftentimes get conflated. One of those phenomena is that Israel is the site of tremendous intra-communal conflict. In other words, Israel is one of the sites at which American Jews fight with each other. Uh, there's a second phenomenon altogether, which is that Israel is not just the thing that American Jews fight about, but something that seemed to have been more important, more central to American Jewish life two generations ago, and now it is possible, and even likely, to be an American Jew or a Jew somewhere in America for whom Israel is an irrelevant or inconsequential piece of your Jewish identity. Those are different phenomena. That Israel would be a source of conflict between Jews actually means that people still care about Israel. Because <laughs> if you're willing to fight with other people about something, then you still, have, uh, you still consider yourself to have a dog in the fight. But distancing from Israel, a growing sense of alienation, that either Israel is too painful to be in relationship to, too alienating, or functionally too irrelevant to one's Jewish identity, represents a totally different story. When you're angry at somebody, you're still in relationship with them. When you are alien from them or apathetic about them, um, it marks a different, uh, a different phenomenon. Now these stories, uh, American Jewish conflict about Israel and American Jewish distancing from Israel are of course related. A couple years ago, a uh, correspondent from Haaretz uh, in, in Israel, one of Israel's newspapers, uh, it was very interesting, she said in, in Israel she keeps hearing about something going on on American college campuses about Israel. So she's like, I'm gonna just go and see. <laughs> 
So she travels to West Coast college campuses and spent a whole bunch of time in a bunch of different college campuses and wrote an extraordinary long article about what she was witnessing. And the sum total of her conclusions was, she said, look, I know there is some conflict on college campuses around Israel, but it represents an incredibly small percentage of the Jewish student body. A small number of hyper-involved um, Jewish students who identify themselves as pro-Israel are in conflict with a small group of hyper-involved Jewish students who identify themselves as critical of Israel. And those represent a very small percentage of the student body. But 90 to 95% of the Jewish student body is not pro-Israel or critical of Israel, but deeply disconnected from Israel, in part because they are ambivalent or disconnected from their Jewish lives more generally. And to, if you're already kind of on the fence about Judaism, the exoticism of a relationship with Israel is like a bridge too far. But she noted, and I think this is important, the reason that those uh, categories are connected to each other is because one of the reasons why the 90 to 95% stay apathetic about Israel is that they identify that Israel is the thing that active Jews fight about. So why would I want, like, what makes that compelling in terms of an entry point to Jewish life? So conflict between Jews is already um, one set of issues, and in many respects, the curriculum that a lot of you have been studying intends to address that question. How can people who are passionate about Israel and have really different um, perspectives and value systems that animate their attitudes about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how can different Jews be in conversation with one another? But tonight I want to address the second question, which is what do we do about the growing um, and larger alienation and disconnection that many American Jews have about Israel altogether? Anger, one set of solutions. Alienation and apathy would be um, a different set of solutions. So American Jews have been active and agitating and talking about this for some time. I think the moment, uh, what I want to call the reckoning, was the summer of 2017 when the issue of the growing alienation of American Jews from Israel became kind of front page news in American Jewish newspapers and Jewish media, not because of um, anything that changed vis-a-vis -vis American Jews towards Israel, but because for the first time it became clear to many American Jews, some of whom probably should have been paying attention earlier, that this was not a one directional alienation. <laughs> that it wasn't merely American Jews feeling alien from Israel, but a obvious uh, understanding that Israelis, by the way, were feeling um, pretty alienated and distanced from American Jews as well. When it comes to peoplehood, it takes two to tango. <laughs> so if American Jews were feeling alien, but felt that Israelis were still in there for Jewish peoplehood, the summer of 2017 was a marker, a, a kind of watershed moment in the recognition that the state of Israel and the Jews of the state of Israel especially were involved in their own active and distancing process from the needs, interests, and in fact the integrity of American Jews and Judaism as well. What I refer to, of course, is the decline, the demise of the Kotel Compromise, uh, in which the government of Israel had indicated publicly that they were interested in negotiating an outcome by which non-Orthodox Jewry could have a place, um, a licensed place to pray uh, connected to the Western Wall Plaza. 
so that um, world Jewry would feel that they were represented. They had a space uh, at what Judaism has long considered its holiest site, and which is an incredibly powerful symbolic pilgrimage site, especially for diaspora Jews. And this goes back a long time. Jews have been directing our attention and praying towards Jerusalem for as long as we know, as long as there has been prayer, and as long as there has been diaspora, which predates even the destruction of the temple. Jews have always faced this direction. And since 1967 especially, pilgrimage to the Western Wall has constituted a meaningful feature of diaspora Jewish identity as part of a... um, a weird phenomena that I like to call the diaspora Jewish bar mitzvah industrial complex. I'm not sure what it's about totally, but it is a meaningful feature of what it means to be a diaspora Jew. The government reneged on this commitment for non-ideological reasons. The government reneged on this commitment because the prime minister had no political gain that could be gotten from angering the ultra-Orthodox parties by trying to change the status quo of the Western Wall. This is just realpolitik, and it is the guiding principle of the Israeli government on every issue for at least the past 25 years. What is electorally plausible and electorally valuable is the guiding premise of governmental policy. Now, you could be angry at the Israeli government for doing this, But the larger question is, why for the Israeli people are the needs and interests of diaspora Jewry so uh, electorally irrelevant that the government correctly intuits that there is no political gain to listen to them? In other words, this isn't merely American Jews and the Israeli government. The larger question is, why do American Jews and Israeli Jews seem to have so little regard for one another? And I think many American Jews who have been hyper-involved and hyper-engaged in Jewish life for decades, involved in philanthropy and support, assumed that the same way that we see you, Israel, and we see ourselves responsible and accountable for you, you have to see us and be in some ways responsible and accountable for us. And the ease, the, 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 there's no better word, the ease through which the interests of diaspora Jews as expressed in that moment were set aside as being uh, electorally useless was a real wake-up call for many in the organized Jewish community. In fact, there's a great image to this effect. Uh, I was in Israel when this happened. Uh, we did a little bit of organizing uh, at the Hartman Institute. We had 160, 170 rabbis from across the denominations. We did a day of study between American rabbis and Israeli rabbis trying to figure out what we should be doing and saying about this. If you opened the newspapers, however, it told a really powerful story. Uh, the American Jewish newspapers, this was front page headlines about the Kotel Compromise. It was on about page 11 of the Israeli newspapers. It was very telling to note what was on the front page of the Israeli newspapers on that day. The front page story for Israeli newspapers was a bizarre photograph of, uh, it's worth Googling, of um, Prime Minister Netanyahu with his um, pants rolled up uh, in the water on the beach of Tel Aviv along with Prime Minister Modi of India. It was part of a state visit of India um, to Israel And therefore, that was what the majority of Israelis were looking at. And I felt that there was something poetic 
and symbolic about these two different stories in which American Jewish leaders are kind of desperately looking toward Zion and asking to be seen, and Israelis are looking in the other direction. From the standpoint of Israel's long-term security, it's a pretty good question and plausible argument that a relationship between the state of Israel and India may be ultimately more valuable than a relationship between the state of Israel and a number of angry reform and conservative Jews in America. When it comes to the question of what does Israel need in terms of its long-term security, well, it needs American support, right? which it has in spades. Israel is a beloved country to the majority of Americans. And it has angered a, a small number of, um, of reform and conservative Jews in America. But if you figure, you want to be realpolitik about it, if I have the evangelicals and I got China and India, that may be a, lo- a better long-term bet <laughs> than securing a relationship with diaspora Jewry. Now that may be true from the perspective of what's ultimately good for the state of Israel, and there are some questions about this because there are interesting trends even among the evangelicals that parallel trends in the Jewish community in terms of generational change. The bigger question, however, is what does this do for the notion of Jewish peoplehood? What's good for the state of Israel may not be in the long-term interest of what's good for the Jewish people. And we're left with a really significant moment of trying to ask, since we are ultimately responsible for the story of Jewish peoplehood, what do we need to do to rehabilitate a sense of collective accountability for this people that seems now hopelessly divided between these two centers? There's something unprecedented and remarkable about this moment in Jewish history and the thriving that takes place between the story of Jews in the state of Israel and the thriving that takes place for Jews here in America as well. In some ways, um, a problem of two communities that are doing pretty well, (laughs) who no longer are sure what to do in relationship with one another, feels like a luxury problem. And the majority of times in Jewish history, I think it's pretty easy to say that if you had asked the people in whatever civilization they were living to trade what they had, either for what American Jews experience, relative luxury, safety, and security, uh, conditions unlike most diasporas in the past, perhaps unlike all, they would undoubtedly had said, yes, I'll make that trade. And certainly, if you offered the trade to most Jews throughout Jewish history, would you trade the conditions that you're living in, in, I don't know, Tunis or Minsk or wherever, for a sovereign Jewish state, relatively secure existentially, thriving economically, and a member of the family of nations? They absolutely would have said yes. And look how remarkable it is that these two experiences, unprecedented in Jewish history, the thriving of the American Jewish story and the thriving of the Israel story, are actually miraculously taking place at the same time. We are, I think it is fair to say, the most fortunate Jews who have ever lived in history, and I don't think it's close. And that's true whether we live in the state of Israel or whether we live in North America. But it creates this fascinating and weird problem of when you have communities that are fundamentally thriving, it no longer becomes obvious to us what we have to do with the other ones. (laughs) If I no longer need the other Jewish community for my existential needs, then why invest in it? There are a whole whole series of factors that um, 
that we could map out of what happened and what changed over the past 30 or 40 years that took Jewish peoplehood from being something that was widely understood to be a key feature of Jewish identity in the middle of the 20th century and have actually challenged uh, these realities. Some of them are simply empirical facts that there's very little for us to change and do. One set of facts, for instance, has to do with transformations in Jewish identity. Once upon a time, Israeli Jews and American Jews in the 1950s saw themselves as essentially part of the same extended family, and one of the pieces of data that helped to solidify the notion that they were part of the same families was that in many cases they were part of the same families. Right? Post-war, the, the divergence of refugee families between America and Israel meant that people had cousins on one side of the water and the, to the other. If you want to make the argument that other people are part of your family, the easiest shortcut to do that is to have some family there. Because then you can take your actual family and extrapolate metaphorically to say that everybody around them is part of your family. If you fast forward 50 or 60 years later, well, I have a different relationship with my third cousins than I do with my first cousins. Third cousins are at that border of family and not family. First cousins are not. But more importantly than that, both Israeli and American Jewry have been undergoing a radical revolution in terms of ethnic identity. American Jews, through intermarriage, adoption, and conversion, are totally changing the nature of who is a Jew and who's a member of a Jewish family. And Israel, through a whole series of immigrations, are transforming the ethnic character of the Jewish people, such that American Jews are still predominantly Ashkenazi, Israeli Jews are a plurality Mizrahi, Jews from the Middle East. It's a harder claim to make to people that other people are part of your family if they don't look like, they don't sound like your family, you don't have actual relations or relatives in that place. And it, and it puts in front of us a challenge of whether we can continue to hold on to a construct of the Jewish people as family, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later on, in, in, in absence of any of the shortcuts that help us to affirm that story. A second major transformation uh, that's taken place uh, in the last 50 years, and one that I'm not sure we can fully control for, it's not about identity, but it's about ideology. The experience of a nation state living in a dangerous Middle East creates political conditions and an ideological climate that's gonna produce a set of commitments, a Judaism that's really different from a Judaism incubated for, by American Jews in America in a hospitable, democratic climate. American Jews, ideologically, are Americans. We have used the, our, our, our context in America to shape and refine a Judaism that is defined by those values. It is not a surprise that American Jews have made as one of the dominant features of our Jewishness a commitment to justice, liberty, and repairing the world. You know what that means? That means we've taken core aspects of what it means to be American, which are a commitment to liberty, justice, etc., and a commitment to American exceptionalism. Repairing the world is an exceptionalist doctrine. We've taken American ideas and created a viable Judaism in America that echoes it. 
Not surprising that Israelis have undergone the same processes, but using a very different framework of an ethnic nation state, right? Um, bringing in the values of different Jews from different communities and are shaping a Judaism for the state of Israel that many American Jews find at times unrecognizable and at other times unpalatable. Let me give you an example of one of these great moments in which identity and ideology play out in terms of the incapacity of American Jews and Israeli Jews to see each other. By a show of hands, how many of you uh, remember when, uh, when Prime Minister and then, and then President Shimon Peres passed away? Front page news, right? If you care at all about the state of Israel, or even if you didn't, <laughs> Perez was one of Israel's great contributions to world leaders, and he was seen, especially by American Jews, as the kind of embodiment of the Israel that American Jews like, right? right? Commitment to a new world order, belief in democracy, belief in justice, identified powerfully with optimism and the peace process, etc. By a show of hands, how many people here took note of when uh, Ovadia Yosef died? Who? <laughs> Ovadia Yosef um, is probably the single most significant halachic Jewish legal decisor for the non-Ashkenazi world since Maimonides. He is also the architect and ideological founder of Israel's Shas party, the movement of Sephardic Jews to reclaim their political heritage within a country in which they had been considered second-class citizens. As a result, he's probably the most important figure, not only in religious life in Israel in the past two generations, but arguably in political life. According to the newspapers, when Perez died, 50,000 or so Israelis participated in some version of funeral ceremonies. According to the same papers, when Ovadia Yosef died, approximately 800,000 Israelis participated in memorial services for Ovadia Yosef, which, even if it's a little exaggerated, let's say it was 650,000, would still be the largest single gathering of Jews since the Exodus. It's an extraordinary number. Now, what happens when a group of actively involved synagogue-affiliated American Jews are much more tied in to the story of Shimon Peres than they are to the story of Avadi Yosef. Whereas from the perspective of Israelis, the dominant story of their, the much more significant event was the death of Avadi Yosef. It might mean that the Israel that we are in relationship to is an Israel that fits into our value system much more than the Israel that's actually there. That's when we talk about a real chasm between these communities are transformations of identity and ideology that ultimately mean that we think that we're looking at each other, but we're actually refracting what we want to see in the other in ways that align with our own values or visions of what we wish the other would be. And of course, as I alluded to before, the third great factor which changes the necessity of the relationship between Israel and world Jewry is not merely what's changed in each of these places, but the fundamental thriving of both. In the early 1950s, it was very obvious to American Jews what they needed to do in order to help Israel. And what were those things? Mostly send money, 
also organized politically. American Jewish community had to organize politically in order to ensure that America would ultimately support Israel, and that wasn't entirely through money. So advocacy, lobbying, and philanthropy. In fact, it's even stronger than that. Those activities may have been primarily responsible for the central organizing system that wound up building the entire institutional infrastructure of American Jewry in the 1950s. American Jews in the 1950s were highly ambivalent about religion, but they built synagogues. <laughs> they built synagogues not because they wanted to pray in them. They built synagogues because they needed to have places to organize that weren't churches. And they were ambivalent, as John Wucher writes, about what to do in those synagogues. And so what ultimately became the dominant religion of American Jewry was ultimately support for Israel. When you fast forward 60, 70 years, of course Israel continues to need the support of American Jewry, and I would never argue otherwise. But it needs it in a very different way. At this point, diaspora Jewish contribution to Israel constitutes at most 7% of Israel's nonprofit NGO GDP. That is a remarkably low number. The primary instrument for the NGO system in Israel in terms of its funding is the Israeli government. So is American Jews still have the infrastructure for support of Israel, but the needs for one another are quite different. And the reverse is also true. The primary export that Israel sent to diaspora Jewry as part of this transaction Loyalty, advocacy, and philanthropy back to American Jews for what? What did Israel send to American Jews? I'm sorry? Oranges. Um, I think it's a little bit different than that. It's actually, it was nachas. It was pride. Israel exported back to the American Jewish community an enormous sense of pride that was really a powerful catalyst for the transformation of American Jewish identity. Here's an amazing statistic. The American election that signaled the watershed moment in American Jews running for office in America as Jews was the 1970 congressional election. That is not a coincidence. The Six-Day War changes American Jewish notions of their own power and makes Jews not pick up and move to Israel, but stand up straight. It's also the watershed moment for when American Jews start wearing kippot in public. We're not gonna get pushed around anymore. That means an, act, an event that takes place in the state of Israel changes how American Jews see themselves. But what happens 50 years later when Israel is exporting equal amounts of shame as it is pride? For many, especially younger American Jews who don't come of age in 67, but come of age in periods of intifadas, assassinations of prime minister, a sustained occupation, when those things happen as the primary image of what is seen on the world stage as representative of the state of Israel, it can no longer be taken for granted that Israel is reinforcing Jewish identity in America. It might also be that Israel is undermining a sense of pride for Jewish identity in America. All of these variables um, suggest to us a set of conditions that no single programmatic solution is going to be able to solve. The goal for American Jews is not to turn back the clock in our transformations of identity. It's unrealistic and it's undesirable. The goal is not to create conditions that Israeli and American Jews have dependencies on one another for their existential survival. That would mean praying for anti-Semitism. Great, maybe a great moment of anti-Semitism or existential threat would pull the Jewish people back together again. I would prefer 
not to test that hypothesis. <laughs> right? we, the, can you imagine the perversity of praying for anti-Semitism so that the Jews would um, care more for each other? Right? And so far, by the way, in America, it's not working. <laughs> um, we can't actually expect to turn back the clock. But I want to ask tonight whether there might be some templates and some language from within our tradition that could help us think about what the relationship could look like. If you open up your sources, um, and we'll, um, um, we'll do a couple of sources and then and open up for discussion. If you open up your sources, I want to suggest tonight that Jewish peoplehood has been defined in large part by two different stories that our tradition has told us at the same time. And then in many respects, um, Jewish peoplehood consists of a kind of two competing claims within Jewish history and tradition about what, Jewish, about what this story of one Jewish people is supposed to be about. The two stories I want to suggest are what I want to call Genesis Judaism and Exodus Judaism. Genesis Judaism, as, as imagined in, um, in the first great story of the constituting of a family that will ultimately become the tribe of Israel, and ultimately the people of Israel, the call of Abraham, is defined by Jewish peoplehood is about belonging to a particular family. By the way, this family is oftentimes terrible. Right? That's actually the whole book of Genesis, is testing how committed you are to a family that continues to do terrible things to each other. In fact, in some ways it feels like it, the more defining variable of family, according to the Bible, is the people who do terrible things to you, but who you are obligated to nonetheless. Throughout the book of Genesis, you have fathers choosing among their children about which one should be the one to carry the legacy forward, and then shunting to the side the other one. You have a story of brothers throwing one of their brothers into a pit, and that like the hero of the story is the one who didn't kill him. Right, it's like a real like bigotry of low expectations. Um, you have a like a really cagey, weird story involving one of Jacob's sons sleeping with one of his father's wives. It's like one of the, it's like in Hebrew school you're like skip. Um, the, this is just a, it's like a bizarre and disastrous set of conditions that wind up overtaking this family. But there's a clear idea about what constitutes this family is that what it means to be part of the Jewish people is to be part of its legacy for better or worse. The call to Abraham, which takes place in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, with very little antecedent explanation of what Abraham has done that's so good that makes him capable of meriting this promise. It doesn't, it's not really about merit. It's about, you know what? God needs to have, a, for whatever reason... God needs to have one family that's responsible for carrying this legacy to the world, and I choose you. Now, that's my family, and I'm going to give you a promise that is going to give you this internal destiny of continuity in the story of this Jewish family in exchange for some basic loyalty. Not too much. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your native land, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Rabbi, we could sing this, right? Um, um, I will bless those who bless you and curse him that curses you and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. What do the Jewish people have to do in order to merit remaining the people of this covenant? Go there. The end. 
right? You have to have some, there seems to be some relationship to land. There seems to be a con- commitment to some continuity, right? You're going to have big families and you're going to flourish. The other fates of the other people are going to be dependent on how they treat you. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. But the core commitment of, of Genesis Judaism seems to be loyalty to family at all costs. You don't necessarily, according to the family of um, Genesis, always have to live in the same place. Right? Abraham and Lot go to different places, and it says in the text, you go separate because you're family. Sometimes the best way to stay family is to live in different places. But ultimately, family winds up constituting the story of the people to whom, when you are called and when you are needed, you are ultimately accountable. Right? Those are ultimately your people. There is nothing in this text that says anything about covenant. And one of the stories that the Jewish people has told ourselves for a long time is that the Jewish people are responsible to one another not because we believe in the same things, right? Not because we're committed to the same values ultimately, but why? Because we are family. Talk more about this, but American Jews told themselves this story for a long time. You can hear the Federation slogans, especially in times of war. Why are you obligated to stand forth in this moment? Not because you agree with the policies of the Israeli government that got you to this place, but because in moments of crisis for the Jewish people, a family stands together. Remarkably, there's a second story in the Bible that happens next. It's the great bait and switch of Jewish history. The Jews have been brought out of Egypt thinking that they're living in the Genesis story. All they have to do is follow the instructions and go to the land, and then suddenly they find themselves beneath Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and the amazing comment happens next. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from Egypt, on that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness, encamped there, etc. Moses goes up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and speak to the children of Israel. Two different definitions for make sure everybody in this family hears this. Jacob and Israel are the two names of Jacob the patriarch that now encompass this whole family of Israel. You have seen what I've done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. Indeed, all the earth is mine. But you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is astonishing news. (laughs) This is not, I am giving you that promise that I told Abraham, just because you are family, you are going to be blessed with these gifts that I bestow upon you. But rather, your condition as the Jewish people are the people who do a certain thing, a set of commitments in the world, and there's a very clear subjunctive statement. If you do this, then you will be that. And what do you have to do? Oh, not too much. Obey me faithfully and keep my covenant. So what's my relationship to other Jews now shaped by? Not family. My relationship to other Jews is shaped by the extent to which they are active participants in helping us keep the covenant. In theory, if I separated out Exodus from Genesis and I wanted a constructive theory of Jewish peoplehood entirely around Exodus then other Jews who don't do what I want them to be doing, not accountable to them. 
If anything, I might have extraordinary rage towards them because they're claiming the title and the name of the family of Israel, but they're not actually doing the things that Jews should do as being the people of Israel. They are actually my worst problem, right? In a Genesis Judaism, other people's misbehaviors are not a problem. They're actually, they're, they're not a bug, they're a feature, there are always going to be other Jews who do things that you hate, but the nature of your obligation to them is intact simply because they are members of your family. In an Exodus Judaism, the nature of my obligation to others is shaped entirely by the extent to which we are participants in the shared enterprise of a covenant. And if I do that, then I can become, the great promise of this text is that the Jewish people can become God's servant class. That's what a kingdom of priests is. All the other nations are the people, and you are my servant class, the priests. You will be able to minister in a special role in relationship between God and the world. Now, of course, in our Bible, Genesis is followed by Exodus, right? In other words, we are supposed to be both a family and a people that holds to a covenant, and obviously the most complex understanding of Jewish peoplehood would demand of us that we try to hold those two things together. That we are both a family and a covenantal people. But in practice, much of Jewish history has been a war between notions of Jewish peoplehood that are rooted in ideas of family and ideas of Jewish peoplehood that are rooted in ideas of covenant. And usually, the covenantal notion of a relationship to Jewish peoplehood gets stronger and stronger when Jews are safe. Right? Because when you're not safe, you need family. That's the people you're going to call on. You're not going to be nervous about the fact that they are disobedient. You're focusing on the fact that there's an essential need to rearticulate the value of family. When Jews are basically okay is when you start to see the rise of Exodus Judaism. A great moment to this effect is in the 19th century. Jews, it's not great in the 19th century, but the 19th century is a moment of the rise of denominations. Denominations come around, are, they are reflections of an Exodus ideology. Who am I most committed to? Not the Jewish people, Reform Jews, Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews, Conservative Jews. Denominationalism reflects an attempt to create sub-communities that think that they are the correct articulations of the covenant. In the 20th century, the balance goes in the other direction. The rise of anti-Semitism, and especially the Holocaust, turns the Jewish people towards a Genesis ethos. My guess is, for many of you in this room, you grew up with a sensibility of the story of the Jewish people as family was much more profound and much more common and much more easily employed than the notion of the Jewish people as covenant. Yes? That's a deep story for much of the middle to the late 20th century. But is it surprising to us that by the end of the 20th century, when the conditions that bred that notion of the Jewish people which were so significant in the middle of the 20th century, give way to conditions in which Jews are now trying to articulate a question of mission for the world. Try to be a rabbi or a teacher today to a young group of Jews who tell them that they are obligated to care and love for the Jewish people just because other people are Jews. Wait, I'm sorry, there's no meaning that's supposed to be attached to this? 
There's no cuff, there's not, nothing that Judaism offers that is supposed to be inspiring. No. Inspiration is the enemy of peoplehood. That is an ineffective argument once the existential conditions of the Jewish people have fundamentally changed. We are living in what I think is effectively the rise of a notion of an Exodus Judaism, where we are primarily tied to our ideological convictions much more than we are tied to family. And just to give you one test of this, it's what I call the B'nai Brak test. A Jew in B'nai Brak, um, something bad happens to a Jew in B'nai Brak. B'nai Brak is the ultra-Orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv. Does it trouble you more <laughs> that something bad happens to that Jew in B'nai Brak than something bad happening to your non-Jewish neighbor or business partner here where you live? Doesn't, maybe some would say yes, some would say no. The overwhelming majority of Jews fail the B'nai Brak test. If, you really, if really we're supposed to be attached to Jews in some way that is transcendent above, Jewish, above the particular convictions that Jewish people have, then we should be able to set aside the fact that that person doesn't look like you, doesn't like you, thinks you're wrong about everything, may not think you're Jewish. You're supposed to set all of those deliberative concerns aside and be attached to that person simply because of an obligation of Jewish peoplehood and to be more grieved and beleaguered by what happens to them than what happens to your neighbors here. But if you can't pass that test, it means that the integrity of that commitment of Jewish family above all is giving way in some ways to another set of commitments. I am more attached to the people with whom I share ideas and values and commitments than necessarily Jews just because they are Jews. I think one of the things that we are living through today, um, and here just look at, look at the third source, and I'm going to offer some concluding thoughts, and I, I would love to hear your responses. This is a, a sketch that we've been trying to work on here at the Hartman Institute. What I think we're effectively living through is that a story of family that was so significant uh, in the middle of the 20th century, a group of people related by blood and having a shared sense of belonging and mutual obligation, and here I just want to insert one footnote, related by blood, real or imaginary. <laughs> the way the Jewish people have thought about family is whether you were born Jewish or whether you were converted Jewish, you ultimately have Jewish blood. It's one of the most radical and subversive ideas that the rabbis have about conversion. Right? So a group of people related by blood with a shared sense of belonging and mutual obligation. This story of family has defined a huge feature of 20th century Jewish life. We are obligated to each other in spite of the fact or maybe even because of the fact that we see the world very differently, but we will ultimately be accountable to each other at the end of the day just because of some sense of shared obligation. The reason why this held sway in the 20th century was because of need, codependency, because of ethnicity, reinforcing the story, and I think ultimately because there was a shared belief that held that family together, the need to build the state of Israel. So now we got a shared project, a shared sense of obligation, and a belief that that project was fundamentally good. It was fundamentally right. 
And as long as we are committed to that fundamental good and that fundamentally right belief, then we are a family doing an Exodus project. But one of the things we have been experiencing over the past 20 years is the possibility that the shared belief is now diverging. What American Jews are most passionate about, about their own Jewish identity, and what they want the state of Israel to be, is really different than the belief systems of Jews in Israel about what they want their Judaism to be and what they want the state of Israel to be. Jews in Israel overwhelmingly want the state of Israel to be more democratic when it comes to religious pluralism and more democratic when it comes to religious coercion. But any version of what the Israelis will bring about for religion and state is going to be far short of what diaspora Jews would actually design. So our belief systems are now becoming much more significant in defining our identity. And then you, you start seeing things like the B'nai Brak test. Lo and behold, my network of shared believers might be a more significant set of commitments than family on its own. And it's also possible, and if you look at the last um, item on this list, that for many of us, family has been replaced not by a community of fellow believers, but by consumer Think about the difference between a relationship I have towards members of my family than the relationship that I have towards something of which I am a consumer. Maybe in some ways the activities that we have done vis-a-vis -vis Israel have turned us into consumers of Israel and have turned Israeli Jews into having a consumer mentality about what they need and what they get from diaspora Jews. The advantage of a consumer model, it's an open marketplace, the deep disadvantage of a consumer model is there's no intrinsic loyalty. We have been in a powerful journey over the past 30 or 40 years from the story of family as something that many of us took for granted as a core feature of Jewish life to the Exodus-type belief systems as being the organizing principles of Jewish peoplehood and in some cases even consumer-type models. Let me make a couple of last comments. One possibility of how we get out of this mess is to try to figure out whether there is something to be learned and something to be gained from all of these categories and starting to get comfortable with different models that may not seem that viscerally comfortable but are at least a gesture in the right direction. Right? Partnership, for instance. Maybe partner could be a more effective model for thinking about the relationship between Israel and world Jewry than family. If the Jewish people no longer feel that they are necessarily family, then maybe something is lost and something emotionally significant is lost. But the language of partnership helps us to figure out what are the aspects of this that could be a shared enterprise and what do the different partners in these relationships have to bring to bear in order to create a climate of mutual benefit? I am not convinced that a next generation of Jews is going to be convinced, much less coerced, to buy into the notion that the Jewish people are family even though they don't feel it or experience it. But they might buy into a notion that there could be some model, investors, partners, and consumers, that signal to them that there is something to be gained profoundly out of a relationship to Israel. And I think it's possible to sell that story to Israeli Jews as well. 
what is gained and what is lost in this climate of shifting dynamic from thinking of this as a relationship of a shared investment, a shared partner, or even something of a consumer. But the other thing I would suggest is, and this goes back to the Genesis-Exodus divide, I think the burden is very much on us as leaders of the Jewish people. And honestly, if you're showing up to a synagogue on a weeknight, you are a leader of the Jewish people. <laughs> as leaders of the Jewish people, trying to figure out how to embody that the most complex version of the story is in some ways the most powerful version. If Genesis and Exodus have been at war with each other in some ways, what does it look like for us, instead of choosing teams and joining in into the, um, the bludgeoning of these various ideologies with each other, what does it look like for us to try to figure out how to embody being a Jewish peoplehood that's actually committed to both? Knowing that maybe you have something of a shortcut of, I believe that the Jewish people are family, but that maybe enables you to have empathy for those generations of Jews who can't fully connect to that metaphor and need the language of covenant. That, that too, is a useful instrument in building some notion of Jewish peoplehood. I'll share with you that much of our work over the last year and a half was that we recognized at the Institute We've been doing this work in America for a long time, and we need to change our language and create new context for American Jews to rethink the relationship to Jewish peoplehood. It's time for us to have this kind of conversation. But the equally powerful work that we've been engaged with, and it's much harder, is trying to figure out how to introduce this vocabulary in Israeli society as well. And one of the things that I think makes me optimistic and hopeful is um, we, the Jewish people, have all of these tools. Not only do we have Genesis and Exodus, we have Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, <laughs> and there's other books as well. Um, all of those tools are actually frameworks and models by which we might be able to construct a vision for Jewish peoplehood that doesn't have the painful shortcuts that the 20th century provided for us, but might be something of the raw materials for a renegotiation of the relationship between Israel and world Jewry that feels right now long overdue. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words, and it was wonderful. I have uh, uh, something that I want to express uh, my doubts about. Uh, the creation of the State of Israel was a, a great meaning for the Jews all over the world. It was a very important, we're very proud of that. And part of the union that we that you, part of the union that we have to the children of being Jewish is that we have focus that we're Jewish and uh, the state of Israel is uh, part of our homeland, although we are Americans and we respect America. If we abandon the notion that Israel is a great country and that uh, Israel is very important to us. Our children, who are united in part of that belief that you're Jewish, that Israel, etc., etc., will probably abandon some of them the Jewish religion, because there is not a lot of sense of the Jewish religion without Israel. Uh, 
Uh, and yeah. uh, we have to analyze that. My yes. second point is that uh, they have, and that's the way that I interpret the United States, they have a great rise in anti-Semitism in the last couple of years in the school system, in the universities, when they don't like Jewish uh, boys, and if they don't have a, a pride to be Jewish, they may abandon the Jewish uh, religion and tradition. Thank you. Great. Uh, just briefly, I'll say, um, look, I, I am, I, am um, <clears throat> I work for an Israeli institution. I care about the state of Israel and the Jewish people. I'm a Zionist. Um, I'm also, uh, I think we have to come to terms with the fact, and it's very difficult to hear, that we have taken, we in this camp have kind of taken for granted that Israel by definition strengthens Jewish identity, Jewish pride, attachment to the Jewish people. And I think we have to confront the fact that for many, um, for many Jews and a growing number, Israel is the single thing that makes them struggle most with their Jewishness. That is in part because um, they experience that they go to Israel and they can feel like full Jews when they're in America, but because of governmental policies and so forth, they feel like lesser Jews when they come to the state of Israel. And of course, because of um, government policy vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Um, so though that factor is, is part of what's underlying this problem. If we take for granted more Israel means more Jewish, we are actually risking that more Israel might turn a significant percentage of our children and grandchildren into feeling less pride and attachment to the Jewish people. In other words, that not Israel would be a more effective route to their Jewish identity. That to me I'm characterizing as a kind of Exodus Judaism. I don't really have to feel attached to that anymore. I need to build community with those who share my covenantal beliefs and values wherever they might locate themselves as being. And here too, um, you know, you mentioned um, anti-Semitism, happy to talk a little bit more about that. Um, it's the trends that we see around the world, uh, around a rising anti-Semitism, are manifesting everywhere. And regrettably, they are um, at times intertwined with the government and policies of the state of Israel. When the government of Israel enters into a coalition with Hungary, which I understand that they want to do and have to do because they believe it's a vital, um, a vital act of realpolitik in the world. And because I think we can believe, as, as my colleague Rabbi Daniel Hartman says, we can be a partner to Hungary without becoming Hungary. It, however, reinforces that some of the most dangerous um, anti-Semitic ideas in the world, as held by people like Viktor Orban, are actually within the scope of the realpolitik of what the Jewish state has to do. And for many of us in the world, I'm not sure that we want to accept that trade-off. So again, the complexity of being a nation state and what a state has to do is not always the shortcut to pride in Jewish identity that we might once have thought. And that's partly what precipitates the, the conversation we have to have today. Let me just ask, we'll have, well, you raise your hand for questions. Both Lisa and I will try to cover the room. We have about 20, 25 minutes more with Dr. Kurtzer. Please keep your questions concise so that we can hear the most from him that we, that we can. That would be great. Hello, uh, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I wonder if you can uh, address uh, the influence of the media and the press on uh, young uh, Jews in America and, and the world. Thank you. 
Great. Why don't I take a couple and then we'll... Um, Okay, um, I'm looking at the numbers Judaism selection here, Yeah. and I assume you didn't cover it because you didn't have time, but I'm asking in questions. I, so I can look at it, and I think I get the general picture that there's a certain division of labor between diaspora Jewry and... Yeah, well, Israeli Jewry in the, in this model, but I don't get the last paragraph. Okay, I mean, I'll, I, I would I'll, understand I'll, if you... I'll tell you why it's here. Okay. Yeah. Um, should we take one more? Sure. And then I know there's some folks in the back as well who have some questions. Yeah. Go Going ahead. back to your B'nai Brock test, I think the answer to your question as to whether we care or not depends on what happened to that gentleman. And if what happened to him was a terrorist act or something anti-Semitic, then our genesis part of Judaism may come to the forefront. If it was something, a bad business deal, we might not care. And then the exodus part comes forward. So my point or my question or, or my idea yeah. with regard to how do we solve these issues is I think what we have to do today as Jews is remember our history. And you mentioned that we, we live in this ideal time as Jews, both in Israel and in the United States, where things are good. Yeah. And I'm not wishing for bad, but the reality is good doesn't last. Yeah. And when you go back historically, and we just came back from a Rhine River trip, and we went up from Amsterdam to Basel and saw that the condition of the medieval Jews is not much better or worse than the condition of Jews today. Yeah. And so my question to you is, maybe the answer lies in teaching history to our children so they understand that, yay, times are great right now, but don't count on it for either us or Israel. Yeah. And therefore, the family remains important. Great. So um, quick comment on the media. Um, uh, look, it's a bad time in the world to be criticizing the press, so I don't want to do that. Um, I think that's like, a, that's like a bad turn. I will say I think Jewish media oftentimes um, gets attracted to the most sensationalist versions of stories um, of what the Jewish people are experiencing and dealing with. I'll say something a little bit controversial. Don't jump on me. I think it's actually a fact. Um, Jewish media covers the BDS movement at a rate of 400 to 1 than the general media. Um, and as a result... Um, Jewish anxieties around the BDS movement are dramatically reinforced by the amount of coverage that there is about the BDS movement. The folks in the BDS movement would be thrilled to know that they were as successful as Jews tend to think they are. They, by and large, um, are experiencing their work as failing. So what, part of, you know, and, and there's a, there are ideological reasons for why certain stories are told in order to um, inflame our anxieties and our fears and what the economy and the industry is that drives those concerns. So I think there's a role in the storytelling world for some of this, um, some of this business. It just requires of us to not just be passive recipients of the stories that are told about what's going on with the Jewish people, but active curators of the story that we wish we were telling. In terms of the text from the book of Numbers, so this is your homework. Um, I want you to go home and read this text. It's an amazing story of how 
Um, it's a, the story is the negotiation between Moses, um, right, about, right as the Israelites are about to cross into the promised land, the most amazing thing happens, which is they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years for a journey that should take approximately six days. Um, that actually takes a lot of work to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and right when they're about to get there, and you, you can imagine it's like astonishing, you're, the whole thing is going to the promised land. And right when you get to the precipice of the promised land, two and a half tribes say to Moses, uh, Moses, we like it here. <laughs> um, and the, 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 the best line of it is they're like, we have a lot of sheep, and this is really good cattle country. Can we stay here? And Moses goes ballistic, and he yells at them for 10 verses, which in the economy of the Bible is a lot of verses. Um, he yells at them for 10 verses, but the core of the argument, the reason why it's so useful here is his argument is, aren't you forgetting that you are family? He uses the phrase over and over, are your brothers going to go to war and you stay here? And that, um, that fraternal language is the ultimate guilt trip. Family travels together. You're going to now weaken the resolve of the Israelites. The response that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Menasheites say is, uh, no, we weren't asking, we were telling you, we're staying here, we have a lot of sheep. Um, and, um, and it's essentially a consumerist response, right? We have a need that requires us to be here, so what can we offer you in response as the trade-off? And what emerges is a negotiation where Moses starts from family, but ultimately negotiates a partnership. That's an amazing story because it suggests that just because the Jewish people are family in somebody's mind doesn't mean there isn't a scenario where which they could negotiate something where we get what we need. Moses, I think, at the end of the day is angry at the Reubenites and Gadites and the Menashites for staying on the, on the good side of the river. <laughs> right? Of course it's better there. <laughs> So Israelis say to American Jews all the time, you're staying because it's better in America? Of course it's better in America. But the whole idea is that you're supposed to be part of the family. That's where he starts the position. He ultimately accepts a negotiated partnership with them because he knows that they're not going to do it. So there's something there that might be a useful template, not just for the possibility that one metaphor can get replaced with another, but that ultimately there's some negotiation that might be possible between Israel and world Jewry that doesn't require of the people who believe that it's family to jettison the idea of family, but might require of them to take seriously that other people have different needs. Um, in terms of the comment on the Bnei Brak test and, and remembering history, I guess I have, um, I have less... Uh, optimism that the study of history leads to the obvious conclusion that one's empirical realities is temporary. Um, now, I believe it, I, I, I am with you, right? I have like a, I have a, a history soul. So I can say at one hand, I think this is the best conditions that the Jewish people have ever had in our history and that that obligates us to take seriously what it means to have affluence and influence and power and privilege and be responsible for the society. I can say that at the same time that I can tell you that I know where all the suitcases are in my house and that our passports are always gonna be up to date. <laughs> right? I know that. I'm not convinced that trying to tell people that what they're experiencing is counterfactual to their condition is ultimately fulfilling. Um, and it ultimately works. And I think many people experience the language of, especially younger people, well, Jews in the 1930s in Germany thought they were safe as well. They experience that as avoidance 
for the unique conditions of the American experience. And it sounds to them like a means of, of shifting people away from their obligations to be good Americans. That they're supposed to be obsessed with our own destruction and our imminent loss, and that that in some ways exonerates or absolves us from responsibility for this country. So there's, I think there's a certain limit, my personal view, you may disagree, is that there's a certain limit in teaching history um, if it's trying to present a kind of counterfactual moral to the lived experience that people have. I think part of the work we have to do is validating what's different and exceptional about this experience, and once you can do that, maybe enter into some conversation about, even so, what else, uh, in what ways are we obligated? Um, yes. Hi, um, a, a question about how you define some terms, because you speak about American Jewry and the diaspora as, as though it were something monolithic. And a straining of the Pew data, at least with respect to American Jewry, would indicate that American Jewry has a lot more diversity of opinion about what goes on in, in Israel, yeah. depending on whether it's, it's secular Jews or observant Jews as opposed to like tripartite reform, conservative orthodox. Um, and in terms of the diaspora, I, I think if we asked Lord Sachs, he would tell you that there really isn't a reform movement as Americans define it, certainly not in, in, in England and probably not on the continent. So to that extent, is the disconnect between Jews in Israel and Jews throughout the world the result of an attempt to impose American liberalism on what's going on in a pretty tough neighborhood in, in the Middle East as opposed to something different? Okay. We'll take, take two more and then... My question to you would be, if you're, you are positing that you think that the covenantal relationship is the relationship, is the model that will bring the Jews forward into a relationship with Israel and with each other, who or what is the covenant with? And I think that's the, the underlying problem. I think that we are all here of a, a certain generation but the next generation doesn't have that feeling of the covenant or understand who the covenant is with or what the covenant is with. Okay, great. Um, we'll take one more in the back. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. I'm wondering what the psychological influence of the Holocaust is on this new generation in regards to their affiliations. That's a light one. Um, you want to take one more right here? Because she's been waiting for a while. Looking around the room, most of us are in a generation who grew up with great belief in the positive nature of the state of Israel because we grew up in the second half of the 20th century. And these days, in the US, the evangelical Christian community is largely more pro-Israel than necessarily the Jewish community. So from my point of view, I want to thank the Christian Americans who are pro-Israel and feel that support of Israel. And I, 
Obviously, that is not the overwhelming feeling in Jewish congregations, um, which is a puzzlement to me. Because we are the, the generation that was so pro-Israel that you would think that we have not lost that affinity and appreciate the people who have moved the embassy yeah. um, to Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. Um, a couple of these seem connected to me to each other. The first um, comment from the, the gentleman in the back about American Jewry, of course, is not a monolith. Neither is Israeli Jewry. There are, uh, there are, these are not, these are uh, dynamic forces at work in terms of identity and ideology of American Jewry. Certainly, um, attitudes about Israel are quite different in the Orthodox community than they are in for the plurality of liberal Jewry. I'm not sure totally what you meant by the comment about there is no Reform Jewry. I, I'm not sure what that's about, but so I'm going to leave that to the side if that's okay. There are, however, dominant um, social and ideological trends in these different places, and one of the questions of Jewish peoplehood is how seriously do we take dominant ideological trends? And I'll, I'll just give you a thought experiment to this effect, which I tried um, two months ago uh, and failed. So just... <laughs> um, I, did a, I did a conversation... Uh, in Efrat, which is a Jewish settlement outside Jerusalem, um, with a group of friends um, and their circle of friends, some of whom I've known for a long time, who I don't see eye to eye with politically. Uh, but we did a, we did a, I, I said, I want to come and talk to you because I'm, part of my work is around figuring out how to keep American Jews connected to Israel. And you guys are, to them, Part of the problem, and I want to talk to you about what their what American Jews are experiencing, and I want to figure out with you what we can do about it. Um, and it was a powerful conversation because I said, "Here's what American Jews are experiencing," and I said, "Does that does this does this implicate you, and does it bother you? And most importantly, does it obligate you? What is your responsibility vis-a-vis the story?" So, not surprisingly, the majority of the folks who were there said it bothers us tremendously that American Jews are distancing from Israel. But the central thing that American Jews have to do is get their act together. <laughs> like we're right, they're wrong, so they just have to learn why they're wrong. So we talked about why that might not be an effective educational methodology. Um, <laughs> And then there was like a, a kind of critical moment in the conversation where a number, of, a number of them said, what angers us the most is that during the Iran deal fight, the overwhelming majority of Israelis were incredibly opposed to the Iran deal. And they watched as the majority of American Jews supported the Iran deal with what seemed to look like a partisan objective. For the president, this was clearly the signature foreign policy accomplishment that he was committed to. It's very clear that he telegraphed to the Jewish community leaders, I need your back here, I need your support. And what bothered them was, it's one thing to be opposed to the government of the state of Israel. Keep in mind that, at best, the prime minister's party winds up winning 30% of the election, right? Um, It's one thing to be opposed to the prime minister. But if the overwhelming majority of Israeli Jewry is opposed to this, isn't your job as American Jews to listen to that? Isn't that the peoplehood move? And to say, even if I think this is better for America, I have some obligations to Jewish peoplehood that require me listening to the majority of the Jewish world. They said that to me. I said, okay, let's take a thought experiment. So if you want that to be true, what if the overwhelming majority of American Jewry we're screaming to you 
that a presidential candidate they saw as an existential threat to American values and to the world. Right? I'm sorry to speak in code. Um, <laughs> but that's been true about the overwhelming majority of American Jewry and its positions about President Trump. Overwhelmingly. Right? The, the, the numbers are overwhelming. And the, as I said, it didn't go well, and I can see some people shaking their heads. It's not going well here either. Um, their argument... Their argument back to me was, no, we, our interest is what's good for Israel, and that's going to be true whether it's in, here in Israel or it's there in America. And I said, that's fine, but then we're not actually having a conversation about Jewish peoplehood, we're just talking about what's good for the state of Israel. If we're really serious about a conversation about Jewish peoplehood, then it means that the majority of American Jews determine what is good for the Jewish people in America, and the majority of Israeli Jews determine what's good for the Jewish people in Israel, and that is in some way obligating and commanding, and we have to listen to it. But if it's only a one-way street, then I'm not sure we're even talking about Jewish peoplehood anymore. We're talking about loyalty to something else. We're not actually talking about a genuine bilateral relationship. We're talking about something else entirely. Comment on the, uh, the question about the Holocaust. We could, we could be here for a while. Um, I spoke with a group of, um, of some of the rabbis and educators this morning about this issue and the ways in which um, about Holocaust memory uh, is, is being contested right now implicitly. That much of what we talk about when we talk about Israel and especially much of what we talk about when we talk about Jewish survival is an underlying um, implicit negotiation between Jews about what we think the commanding memory of the Holocaust is supposed to be. I think for many Jews who are survivors, the children of survivors, who have the Holocaust in the rearview mirror constantly, experience the specter of that Holocaust memory um, to define a commitment to never allow the Jewish people to become victims again. I think a growing number, still small percentage of Jews feel that the overarching moral message of the Holocaust is the fear of becoming perpetrators, and that will turn you to a very different politics, and that for many Jews as well um, have identified that the dominant moral lesson of the Holocaust is, as America tends to believe, not to be a bystander. Now, it's possible to believe all of those things. <laughs> Right? We should not be any of those things. But I would suggest that they're actually in some ways pulling us apart and that there's a tremendous amount under the surface of the way that Holocaust memory is deployed politically to be able to drive certain um, clear political agendas of what the state of Israel should do and how American Jews should support it. There's extraordinary history of the way that Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, um, who wound up taking over from Begin, quite remarkably, as the principal, um, the principal uh, kind of inheritor of the rhetoric of Holocaust as a key feature of his politics, who you know, uses periodically the phrases, it's 1938 and Iran is Germany. He hasn't used them in a while. Um, but there was something very learned about the way the prime minister did that, because sometimes he would say it's 1933 and Iran is Germany, and sometimes 1939. And there was a deep awareness of we're reliving Jewish history. There's something profoundly Jewish about the cyclical, cyclical nature of how we think about these historical moments, but it suggests to us that I think the Holocaust underlies a good deal of not just how Jewish politics have been animated, but how they continue to define our consciousness. 
And finally, there was two comments that both seemed to be um, about, um, about generation gaps, um, the question of a covenantal relationship. Well, for us, the covenant is obvious, but what about for those who it's not? So I, I'm using covenant a little bit differently. When I think about Exodus Judaism, I think there are a tremendous amount of young Jews who are active and involved in Jewish life and are doing so outside of the frameworks of our institutions. Um, and their Judaism is very much Exodus-based. That is to say, they are committed to doing Jewish if it's consistent with a set of values and a set of beliefs. They are not sold on the idea that they should be Jewish simply because, or that they're loyal to someone else simply because that person is Jewish. And the way in which, only way, and with this I'll, um, with this I'll, I'll conclude, the only way in which we can envision a generational bridging is really if we stop being um, disappointed with the next generation of Jewish life and start figuring out how they are playing out a version of Jewish history that by definition is gonna be different than the generation um, that we've inherited. You know, one of the most single defining features of, of how we shape our relationship to Israel is the accident of when we happen to be born. You know what? If you remember certain moments, it's going to shape your political identity and relationship to the state of Israel very differently than someone else. You can be angry at somebody else for not having your memory, but I promise you it's futile. <laughs> um, the only way in which to build a relationship is to ultimately acknowledge that we have different um, assets and advantages that come with being born at different times in history and to try to figure out whether we can have empathy for why people come to the conclusions that we, that we do. And what that ultimately does, and this is what I, I tried to present today, we're, we're living in a period of tremendous entropy as relates to Jewish identity and Jewish peoplehood. It's uncomfortable. Right? The story that was true about Jewish peoplehood in a previous generation feels to be not true. The instinctive response is to try to foist the same construct that worked for us for a long time on those who come next. I challenge you to remember what it was like when you were 18 and someone was trying to foist their understanding of how the world worked on you. It never seems to work. The only way in which we're gonna be able to do this is if you remember that these things operate in cycles and if we try to model a version of a, deep, of a much more integrated sense of Jewish peoplehood, one that is rooted both in family as well as in covenant, and to try to see whether that can help us facilitate um, a, a next great future of Jewish peoplehood. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.